When you're in Jonesboro, Arkansas and you're hungry, the best place to go and find a quality meal is at Lazari Italian Oven. They're located at 2230 South Caraway Road in Jonesboro, Arkansas. They do pickup orders to go and dine in. You can call Lazari Italian Oven at 1-870-931-4700. Tony, what would you suggest to get there? Anything. It's all great. Make sure you go by there and tell them that the Crucial Conversation sent you. You won't be disappointed when you go to Lazari Italian Oven. But I'm not going to lie. I do like that number 224. Go find out what that is for yourself. Go check out Lazari Italian Oven. In my opinion, there's nothing better than comfortability. And when I walk into a room, I don't want it too hot. I don't want it too cold. And we have just the sponsor to bring to you to make that happen. His name is Nat Anderson. And Nat Anderson has been doing heating air for several years. He's done it in several towns, but right now he's based in Jonesboro, Arkansas. So if you're in Northeast Arkansas, you need to contact Nat Anderson at 870-935-1155. And as always, let Nat know that the Crucial Conversation sent you and you will not be disappointed. Has the conversation ever let you down? The answer is no, and we don't start today. Finding Strength in Struggle and Purpose in Pain is what the book No Mess, No Message is about by Dr. April Jones. Dr. April Jones in this book will encourage you and strengthen you through all of your hurts, all your struggles, and it's going to give you hope for tomorrow. Dr. April Jones also has a website where you can download her book and a lot of the products that she sells at thedrifteddrum.com. Tony, tell me a little more. Put in promo code CRUCIAL and you can get 10% off your entire order. Not only do you get the 10% off, but she's even going to throw in a free companion journal. Anything that you see on that website that you like, make sure you put in promo code CRUCIAL and get 10% off your entire order. What a great friend to have, a part of the Crucial Conversation. Hey guys, this is Brian and I'm Tony and you're listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Brian, I am super thrilled. We are done with the phone interviews and what better way to have or kick off our new season of the Crucial Conversation than with the one, the only, Brother Gary Ellis. Brother Ellis, thank you so much for spending some time with Brian and I. Uh, we appreciate it. You welcomed us into your beautiful building. You was telling us a little bit about your building when we first walked in. We definitely want to hear some cool things about that, share with our listeners the privilege we get to be in right now. And if you hear something in the background, Brian, it's because we're not at a dead church. Right. We are not at a dead church. They got it's, some stuff going on. It's Tuesday. While you guys are sitting at home with your feet kicked up, this church is rocking right now with some good music. I'm having a hard time not going and joining them right no, now. No, absolutely. <laughs> but Hey, but, and that's a good thing. It's a Tuesday, and they're preparing for Sunday. Yes. Sunday's not taking this church by surprise. Not at all. Brother Ellis, you're the man. Thank you for sitting down with us. No, How thank are you, you all for having me. Yeah. So tell us about your building that you were just telling us about that we're sitting in right now. First, this building here was built shortly after the Civil War. In fact, uh, the 1901 is the actual construction date of this building. And it was built for an orphanage called the Oddfellows Home. And then later in the 50s, it became the Clarksville School of Theology. And uh, with some run-ins with the law, the, the, the founder of that college was closed down by the, 
the state. And so it stayed vacant from 1974 until we purchased it in 1986. And of course it was very badly damaged and vandalized and it was just an awful wreck. In fact, it almost got uh, condemned to be torn down. I knew nothing about leading a church or growing a church and I walked in because we was in the storefront and I walked in, I saw the size of the building, I thought it was pretty big. Uh, and then I said, yeah, let's try it, you know. Of course, it was a nightmare. <laughs> you know, I went broke trying to, uh, trying to fix it up. But look at it now, you guys, yeah. uh, we're kind of jumping ahead, but you, you now, where you bought the building, God has given you the city block and you have a sanctuary next to here. And when you come into the foyer of your church now, there's there's plans for even greater vision. Yes, Tell sir. me a little bit about what you got planned to coming up. Well, you know, and when you first pull up in this parking lot, you saw that black area with the black pavement. Mm -hmm. That's all the property we owned when we first got there. Just a little bitty space. Just a little space. We could we'd max, out, max out our parking with 12, 13 cars. And, uh, but I had a vision to start purchasing the property. Now, next door was some apartments. Next door to that was a house. And of course, down the street was a daycare. And where our sanctuary currently is now, there was a, a, a vacant lot that belonged to a builder that was building some houses behind us. And so God opened up the door for us to get that land and and something happened where I was able to get uh, the apartment building next door and the house next to it and uh, got that. And now I own the daycare down the street. And uh, God just keeps getting your vision bigger and well, bigger. Well, it's working somehow. Yes. So with all these building plans and these purchasing plans, has it all been smooth sailings or have you had any he oh, headaches? Oh, no. Far off from smooth sailing has been... It's been rough all the time, yeah. I can tell by the smile that you, you're thinking of a story right now. <laughs> oh, it's nothing but stories. <laughs> Bishop, there, we, we love being with you. Um, I met you, I told Brian, it makes me feel old, but probably about 20 years ago, you came and preached for my pastor yeah. in my hometown. And I met you there, and I, I, was, I remember how dynamic of a man you were, and we count it as an honor you would sit down and talk with us, but let's go way back before we got into meeting this dynamic preacher. Um, you were a military man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your, your early early living and how you got developed to become a pastor, what, what you're doing now. Well, that's a long story, but uh, I was a troubled teenager, uh, and I grew up on the streets of Louisville, and uh, Stayed in trouble a lot, so I dropped out of high school. You know, in the 1970s, you could uh, join the military, the Army at least, without a high school diploma. So I got in trouble with school and a little bit with the law, and I joined the Job Corps, got in trouble with that, and got kicked out a second time out of high school. And I was just strolling down the street one day and walked into the Federal Building to see what was in there. And I saw the signs that said U.S. Army. And I hadn't talked to my father or anybody about it. So I walked in and took the ASVAB test and then signed up for the Army in the delayed entry program at 19 years old. What did your mom and dad think about that? Uh, my mom and dad weren't together. I was staying with my dad at the time, but my dad thought it was the craziest idea 
<laughs> he ever heard. Cause you know I was I was I was young and I had never been out of Louisville, and uh, I um, used to get in trouble a lot. You know I told you that. So he felt like I was gonna get tied up with the guys from New York and Chicago and Los Angeles and get myself in some deep trouble. And uh, it, it could have been that way, but um, I, that didn't happen. But I did get in trouble while I was in there. And so my rough time in my early days in the military was really rough. It was really rough, and uh, because of my attitude and my my cultural upbringing at that time. Uh, but uh, I left Fort Bliss after I got married in '78 and went to Germany. And when I got to Germany, some things had happened. My little sister died. I came back on emergency leave. Let's make the long story short. I got saved in Germany. And on the day that I repented, I bought up my cigarettes, threw them in the trash, came home and flushed all my illegal debris down the toilet and uh, cut off the drinking and the smoking and changed friends that day. Just I wasn't going back to the way I came out. And that's where it all started. Now, I, I had no a real apostolic church to belong to over there. So my experiences were a little different than most people. You know, so I didn't get baptized in a in Jesus' name in a apostolic church. Or while we were there, some guy was traveling through from Florida and he was teaching on baptism and uh, he taught to be baptized in Jesus' name. He wasn't even apostolic, he was Trinitarian. But I got baptized in Jesus' name that that night at the service. And a few weeks later, a friend of mine, a few weeks later, a friend of mine uh, 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 had a prayer meeting and it was about four of us in a room, and there was no loud music, there was nothing. And so I uh, prayed, and I was in the corner in a chair, and I began to speak in tongues. And he said, uh, Gary, he said, man, did you know you spoke in tongues? I said, well, what, what's that? And uh, he said, man, you received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I said, well, what's that? And uh, I had no idea what it was, and so he taught me a Bible study on the baptism of the Holy Ghost, and that's... Well, that's began with me, you know. And so my wife and I, we got moved up north to a place called Munchen Gladbach. It was a, a British Air Force uh, post. And uh, our church was across the border in Holland. And so we were snowed in. And my wife, was, while I was at work, my wife was at home studying. And when she finished studying, she came and told me what she discovered about holiness. And we were doing uh, family devotions, and I ran across Isaiah 9 and 6. And we talked about that, and then we learned the value of the oneness of God. We started studying that together as a couple. We didn't have a pastor to teach us that, you know. Was she saved at the time? Uh, well, both of us got saved a week apart. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, at, Brian, I don't know about you, but that blows my mind that it doesn't take... Um, some extravagant service. It doesn't take um, an altar call when you feel convicted. Right. Whenever you have a desire within you for more, right? that's, that's well, when things can happen. Well, you know, my wife didn't get the Holy Ghost at an altar call. She got the Holy Ghost under the hairdryer at home. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, we, didn't, we, didn't, we weren't taught any doctrinal 
aspects of oneness and the Holy Ghost and baptism. We just studied and sought God while we were home. I didn't learn about denominations and the contradictions and the conflicts between denominations yeah. until I got back to the States. We just never had that experience when I first came to the Lord. So, Wow. Mm -hmm. So how did you go from Germany come back home? Were you in the military for longer than four years? Oh, or? yeah, yeah. I was in the military when I got back from Germany. Okay. Yeah. So how long did you serve a military career? Uh, 17 years, eight months. I just took the early retirement after I got back from Desert Storm. So how did you how did you transfer into pastoring and all that? How did, <laughs> well, well, not only that, but I want to ask, can you live for God and being in the military? They, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, Be, yeah. Because I've seen countless stories of people, they enlist and they lose their sense of conviction. And I understand there's a lot of peer pressure, but what's it like? Keeping your stand on, I'm going to live for Christ. It's not even keeping your stand; it's getting a stand. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? That it wasn't easy because you know your your leaders, you know, are opposed to you. Uh, I would have things facing things like I couldn't put my Bible on my desk at work, but they could sit around and look at you know pornographic magazines, and there's always constant pressure to to uh, to conform. Uh, to conform, yeah. And so that that uh, that was always difficult, but I, I made my mind up. You know, I was going to live for God. You know, and I wasn't wasn't, wasn't uh, opposed to fighting for it. You know, so that's what happened. Um, but when I got back from Germany, my wife and I were trying to find a place we could call a home church, and because we always taught to be really afraid of denomination and organization and all that stuff over there, you know, as new Christians. I just I was always afraid of what could happen to us if we got it tied up in the wrong thing, and uh, so we just started studying at home and um, trying to just learn what we could while we were at home. Where was home at? Uh, it was on post. It was in our apartment on post, and so uh, I won a man to God while we was on a field exercise in the field, and uh, I brought him back to the house after that. To, try to find a place to get baptized. So we tried to walk, go around town and see if someone would help me get him baptized. And all the pastors didn't want me to, didn't want to help us. They wanted us to join their church in order to to, to get baptized. And I, I went and bought me a 300-gallon horse trough, put it in my garage, and baptized him and started teaching Bible study in my home. Well, he was so energetic and love for for God. He went and invited people to my Bible study at home, and uh, we several people. So he, in about uh, six weeks, I think it was, we had about twenty one people in my house having Bible study, mm. and uh, and then I baptized a bunch of people in my garage that time, and and then you know the post tried to shut me down and came down on me, so the post chaplain, you know, uh, put a lot of pressure on us. So we started looking for a storefront, and I found a storefront finally. And the first storefront I found was in a plaza called Ringgold Plaza, and uh, it was right next to a strip bar. I didn't know any better. So I was, I was ignorant. I didn't know any better. So I, I didn't know how to shop for a church or look for a church. I didn't know how to do it. didn't know the first thing about, uh, you know, Leading an organ, uh, organized church, I just did what I could do to 
teach people the Word of God yes. and baptize them in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we just went from there, you know, and prayed people through the Holy Ghost. And So did you know while you were still enlisted that you were called to pastor? I didn't. Uh, when I started designing the, the thinking that there was, 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 uh, my sergeant major had offered me a job at battalion reenlistment before I was communications, commo, and I would go to the field a lot. And I prayed and I said, God, if you're trying to help me, t tell me to be a pastor, you've got to give me a job where I, I can do this. And that week, the sergeant major invited me into his office and asked me if I'd take the job as battalion reenlistment. Mm. And that's what happened. That's where my career changed. You better be careful asking God to do something. Whenever. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what happened with that. Yeah. Um, with your military experience and your pastoral experience, you've had to experience leadership. You've had to learn to be a follower, um, and, and even your upbringing. Are there things about you that people assume that when they really get to know you, they're shocked to find out? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, I think that, and I got to be really careful with this. I think that people, when they saw I was really hungry to live for the Lord and trying my best to learn to accept uh, leadership on a different level, some took that as weakness, and they uh, were shocked to realize that I would and could stand up for myself mm. and speak, you know, to people and not be afraid. And I wasn't ambitious, so people were telling me, well, you know, you can't preach conferences if you do this and say that. And I told them, I said, I'm not ambitious. I don't need to preach a conference Amen. To, mm -hmm. to love God. I mean, I still love God, whether I, you know, get a chance to preach these events or not, you know. I'm not I'm not in this for my glory. Or Thank what God for that conviction. Opportunities yeah. I can have. I just want to do what's right, you know. So how was your wife dealing with all of this? She was afraid. Yeah, she was afraid. She was uh, very scared. You know, my wife was very afraid and intimidated by... That's a great word, intimidated. Yeah, yeah by many of the people we're around. And uh, it just really, you know, just really caused her a lot of grief, you know, because sure. she'd cry and pray all the time, you know. It, it was hard for her, and, you know. So when you took that early retirement, um, how did she handle that? Did she know that what you guys were getting into here in Clarksville? Uh, she accepted that pretty well, you know, because, you know, she, she knew I was under a lot of pressure in the military. And uh, what happened was uh, I had to go overseas to Turkey. And it was my first short tour, and I went overseas to Turkey. When I got back from Turkey, uh, there's a storm, there's a shield that broke out. And so I, six months after I got back from Turkey, I had to go to Desert Storm, Desert Shield. And when I got back from Desert Storm, Desert Shield, you know, I had to rebuild this church all over again, you know. And How uh, long were you gone for? I was gone a year for the first time, and the second time I was gone six months. And so when I um, got back from Desert Storm, Desert Shield, had to rebuild the church, and right in the middle of doing that, uh, uh, a, a message came down that, that I was going to, uh, uh, I could I could retire, where they were going to send me overseas again, and I, I wanted to get out, and uh, I w was going to ETS with 17 years plus in the Army, but 
uh, they sent a message that I could apply for early retirement. So I did, you know, and I applied for early retirement. And I had 17 years, eight months when I applied, and I got approved. And so I got out with the uh, 17 years, eight months. Now, were you were you stationed here in Clarksville? I was stationed or? here. Yeah, I was stationed here so in Clarksville. What 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 kept you here? Was it the people or the church? The, the vision the church, that you yeah. knew what you could build. Yeah. So whenever you started to pastor full time, there had to be hurdles that you had to go through because. Well, the first hurdle I had to overcome was my own ignorance. I had no idea what building a church would be like. Uh, the second hurdle I had to overcome was uh, some organizational issues. I, I felt that was difficult. But if I can avoid speaking about those things, I, I'd appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so after you've come here for a while and you have started building your church, um, you're you're a black man starting a pastoring a church. You don't really, like words out of your own mouth, you didn't really understand what you were doing. How did your community take you as a minority leader in your area? I don't know what receptive? it's like. I don't know what it's like other places. Mm -hmm. But in Clarksville, I had a real good reception. I had built a real good reputation in the town. Uh, worked really hard to build relationships with business leaders, uh, government officials, chief of police, uh, the sheriff, and uh, other authorities in the city. I had a real good reception. I've never had to deal with issues regarding white supremacy and all that business. Uh, not in the city. Now, I can't speak for other places uh, in my life, but it wasn't in this city. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 So what do you what do you make of everything that's going on right now? Uh, I'm yeah. talking about uh, the tragic death that occurred in Minneapolis on the streets of Minneapolis. Oh, yeah. Um, let's get your take uh, as um, bro. You're my brother. Mm -hmm. You're my brother in Christ. You're we, we believe the same. We preach the same. Um, bro, I love you, but people that are not in that kind of unity, um, it's, it's almost like if I don't believe the way that you tell me I'm racist, or if, um, I don't believe you, like Brian said on prior podcasts, we can't be friends. Right. Tell us a little bit about your perception on what's going on with racism in the United States right now. Well, let me tell you, as a black man raised in the 1960s during the Civil Rights era, having gone through my first riot when I was in the fourth grade and National Guard soldiers was in my school, the reality of racism, I know that it exists. And I have experienced it when I was young and in the streets and doing things in the streets. And I experienced some of it. Uh, covertly in the military. Uh, so it exists. I, I think that you'd be making a mistake to say that racism does not exist in the United States. And to some people, it's even more horrific on a daily basis than it ever was for me since I have been converted and uh, moved to this town, Clarksville. Now, I'm not going to tell you I didn't experience racism in this town because I did. I experienced covert racism. I experienced some overt racism in many cases. 
But I made up my mind as a Christian, I'm just going to handle some things a little differently. Mm. And, uh, and my response is what I'm responsible for. I'm not responsible for making anybody love me. <clears throat> I'm responsible for my reaction to whatever their behavior is. Now, I personally, this is just me personally, uh, when people get angry and begin to riot, there's a lot of pent-up anger in black people for the way black people have been treated. And I've seen it, you know. And I've seen, I've witnessed it, and there's a and and many many uh, places they go and they get mistreated, and there's some <clears throat> organizational response as to why it shouldn't be dealt with properly, and so there are people who are angry, just very very angry, and they'll you know someone will come in and spark up that emotion, and and people will start to riot and. Um, now, here's where I get off the train. I see no sense, no logical sense in being so angry at systemic racism or uh, programs of racism or whatever you do. I see no sense in being angry with people and burning down your own community. Uh, and, and, and destroying the lives and the livelihood of people in your community who you're supposed to be protesting for. I just don't like that. I have no uh, desire to be a participant in those kinds of behaviors because I am a firm believer of where the Bible talks about pursuing peace with all men and not to render evil for evil, you know, but but to, to have a mind where I can follow peace with even my enemies. Yes. You know, and so you don't have to like me, you know. I don't I don't want you to like me if you don't want to like me. That's not my goal. My goal is not to make you like me if you don't want to like me. My goal is to present myself as a real Christian. For Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm just not going to get into a lot of anger comments and hurl insults and, you know, just do that kind of thing. I just not. I, the first riot I was in, in uh, uh, well, not in, but, you know, I experienced when I was in the fourth grade. I lived in Louisville, and um, in Louisville is a street called 28th Street. It runs all the way from Broadway down to a place called Dumont Hill, Long, Long Street. And on 28th Street, you had all the black businesses. You had supermarkets, shoe shops, and clothing stores, and gas stations, and supermarkets. We had all kind of black businesses on 28th Street. When the riots start, they burned and looted all of the businesses on 28th Street. See, I, I see no sense and letting that, your be, letting that be your response to racism. I, I just don't see the, the sense in it. I just can't see the logic in it. Mm -hmm. And people come back and they, they argue, well, it's all kind of pent-up anger from 400 years of oppression, da-da-da-da-da-da, and listen to all that. But see, it still makes no sense. Because if you 
say that white oppression is the reason why we are like we are, why are you going to make it even harder for an old man who's built his business or a young person who's become an entrepreneur trying to start yeah. a business? And why, why would you do that? It just makes no sense to me. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm not in agreement with a lot of these movements that retaliate and want to retaliate evil for evil. Now, I'm, I'm old enough to be black all my life, you know, and I, I know a lot of people who knows I'm a very ultra-conservative black man, and they talk to me like I don't believe racism exists. I, I know racism exists. It exists in our culture. It exists in many churches. It exists in many organizations who carry the title of Christian. I know it exists, but I just refuse to respond in certain kind of ways. Respond with hate. Yeah, yeah you re refuse to do that. Mm -hmm. Now, I will tell you that I, I believe that if I can't get you to change your behavior, I can always say, okay, well, our conversations are over. I'm, I'm not going to treat you bad. I'm not going to try to hurt you, but I don't, I'm not going to just be, let me be honest with you. I'm not going to keep putting money in your pocket and, uh, you know, giving you my support, you know, if that's, if that's what I mean to you. But uh, I'm not trying to be vocal about that anymore. I tried, but uh, it, it didn't work out, you know. Sure. Yeah. So, like, what, we, what I've seen a lot on Facebook is a lot of if, if you're not retweeting the hashtag Black Lives Matter, you're racist. If, you're, um, if you disagree in any point of what's going on with the riots, I need to befriend you. What do you make of the, the response of just cutting ties with people just because they don't agree 100%? Do you think that relationships should continue so that way you can try and bring people to the right side? Or is it better just to cut people off? Well, I don't know if just cutting people off is the answer. I believe that the first response is to try to establish a dialogue and where people can communicate and be honest in their communication. And I, and I think that communication should not include hurling insults and calling names and trying to dictate somebody's motives for disagreeing with you. Uh, that's my first response. But if at some point, that all we're doing is going back and forth and there's all kind of innuendo and uh, uh, character assassinations and, uh, and personal insults, I, I, I will cut you off, mm -hmm. you know. The, the, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, don't be friends with an angry man unless you get your, a snare to your soul and become like him. Right. So uh, I, I'm not going to stay in that environment if that's how we're going to relate, you know. So, so when you see like video like that came out, do you, does your default go to this is an act of racism with the or, police? Yes, with the officer. Or did you see this is just an example of police brutality? Uh, both, because see, I I grew up in the inner city, and there are things that police will do to a young black man that they won't do to a young white man in the same scenario. So both. Uh, become an issue for me um, and um, because t to me I think I think what happened to George Floyd was 
no question about it. Absolutely evil. And uh, I don't know. murder. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely murder. And I don't think that that in and of itself was nothing more than police brutality on the surface. But when the city attorney refused to lock somebody up and press charges immediately, then you have to ask, why is that so? Mm-hmm. You know, when you got so many examples of police using their authority, yes. you know, in that way with people of the minority uh, population and nobody does anything except the chief of police <clears throat> or whoever's in, a, in authority would, you know, find some uh, uh, bureaucratic way of explaining the civs away. The young lady in Louisville who the police shot her while she was in her apartment, you know, uh, and she wasn't armed or anything, and the, the chief of police was fired the next day. But uh, nobody's talked about charges yet, mm-hmm. you know. And so those kinds of things leave people, many people, many black people believing yeah, there's racism, you know. Uh, I remember when I first got to Clarksville, River, the, the Two Rivers Mall was down here, and this is where some of the kids would hang out on the weekends, and they parked their car, and they uh, sit out and smoke, and everything out there in their parking, big crowds of them. And the police would just ride past and wouldn't say anything. But then when that parking lot was empty and you got six black kids sitting in that parking lot talking, they stop them, want to search them, search the cars, you know. Uh, that, that's Nobody can deny that that is racism. And just because you can explain it away does not mean that it's not. Uh, my own experiences in places in our fellowship when a bunch of black, white kids around talking and having fun, they're fellowshipping. Four black kids get together. They are causing division and building the gang. So I, I think, no, I don't know how you, I don't care how you explain it, that's racism. And you can talk your way out of it all you want to, mm-hmm. but you're not going to make anybody change their mind if you, unless you change your behavior. The real change comes from your heart. Yeah. It, it doesn't come from your from your actions. It really doesn't. Right. Um, Bishop, you well, have what's in your heart manifest in your actions. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you speak it. Yeah, well, the Bible says from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Speak it. Yeah. So, I mean, eventually people will be able to know because what's in your heart will eventually manifest itself. Yeah. Bishop, you have spoken into countless lives through your ministry, uh, and you have uh, pastored. No telling how many people, um, your your DVD series. No telling how many homes they've been played in, and your preaching series. And you guys recorded music albums. No telling how many people that's ministered to. The question I want to ask you is: If you could pastor the hurt black community, what would you say to them? I would say to them: Nobody is going to deny your hurt. Neither should you. But your response should be the response of Christ. The Bible says to forgive your brother. If he repents, forgive your brother. And if he sins against you again, forgive him again. And they said, Lord, increase our faith. Because, see, it takes faith to forgive 
certain behaviors. I, I, I'm not going to tell you any lie, man. I, I got angry about some things. I'm not going to repeat those um, transgressions against me and my family, but I got angry. And I got angry enough to want to revisit the old me. And I, I don't want anybody to experience that old me, you know. And I know that I could have destroyed my testimony in one single outburst and one single response to that. And so I felt like it would be better for me to say what I had to say in the most tactful way I could and just let things go, you know. But I do know that I'm not going to invite that kind of behavior by continuously participating. And, uh, and I wish I could be a little bit more straightforward, but I know we're on a podcast and a lot of things are going to go public. And well, I don't, we're, I, we're as open as you yeah, are. Yeah, I don't, I <laughs> just, you don't have to I, mention names. <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, I, uh, you don't I'm, want to preach conferences anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not worried about that. I'm, I'm not worried about that. I'm just not trying to... Uh, we understand. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, try to cast dispersion on anybody. You know, there, there's I've experienced racism where people were ignorant about it. They didn't mean any harm at all. You know, they're just ignorant, you know, just. Like, what would be an example of that? Because, like, I would never want to come off in any way, uh, negatively be perceived anyway. What's something that, that you see maybe – regularly that you're like they don't even realize what they're doing i want i want to i want to add to this because what i think is ignorant is that a professional athlete like drew Brees has to apologize for saying please don't disrespect our country i think that's ignorant that people get so upset over that that it's forced him to come out and apologize for an opinion yeah uh and and i i think that's the whole problem with the apologetic culture you know it's not going to stop him from feeling way he feels you know mm-hmm. he's just going to appease uh the people who's got the vocal you know you can't argue with people who are uh, by ink by the by you know by the tons you know uh, uh it used to bother me when i go someplace and the white guy come and greet me he meant, meant good but he's got to shake my hand this soul brother kind of way you know <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just bothers me that you feel like you got to approach me that way. Yeah, you know, I'm 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 just as intelligent as any man. Sure, and you can just shake my hand and greet me like you can anybody. You don't have to go through the yo bro things with me. <laughs> you know, and I so, want to ask you a question that is very straightforward. I've been over here kind of struggling with how I would ask it, mm-hmm. and I'm not gonna be politically correct at all. I'm just gonna come out and, and ask you, what does um, the white ethnicity? need to understand about the black community? The black community is like any other community. Let me give an example, like in the white community. Y'all have got people that like country music. Y'all have got people that like symphony music. You've got people that like rock and roll. You've got people that like, you know, different kinds of music. I don't claim the ones that like country music. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying is that there's all you got different cultures. To assume that black people like only one kind of music, you know, and that you can you can really get them by playing one kind of music. Uh, 
that doesn't, that's not how you win white people, but black people by putting them in one group and expecting them to react as a group. Black people are just as individual as any white man. And you got to understand what their character is. You got to understand what their priorities of life are. You got to, you got to do that. And I think black people despise being treated as a group and expected to think as a group. You know, well, that goes right along with the tweet that I just saw. I forget who posted it, but it was a very high Christian figure, a black man. I forget who it was, but he he made a tweet that says. Um, you can't judge a whole ethnic group by one or two, just like we can't do the same for police. Right. You can't judge the whole police force by one or two bad apples yet. Right. That's what everybody's trying to do right now by defunding a police department, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Or trying to overthrow government. You can't base every every police officer, and you can't put base every white person or every black person, like you're saying, based on a couple. Yeah, and that's 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 a mentality that I think our world and our generation has right now. Even when it, it doesn't even have to be with race, it could be with religion or beliefs or um, homosexuality. Even if if you don't if you don't think it's right, well, we can't we can't communicate. And all I mean, it's it's unbelievable what that we have to really consider what we're saying before we can talk about the real issues. Right, well, I, I'm not that thin-skinned. You know, where we can't have a straightforward conversation. I just expect you to accept this. If you can be straightforward with me, then you should respect me enough to let me be straightforward with you. Right. Absolutely. That's all I ever ask for. I'm not asking you to change your opinion because I said something. Yeah. I'm not asking you to make any changes. I'm not, I don't want to control you. You, you can listen to what you got to listen to and make a determination whether you feel like it's worth your effort. But, you know, you've got to give me that same respect, you know, whatever, whatever level that you want to be on with me, you know, then you've got to give me that respect to be on the same level with you. I heard a debate recently because I've been studying a lot of debates and uh, I was listening to a religious debate and there's actually a church we passed getting here. And one of their preachers that, uh, uh, that was defending the, the, the ending of spiritual gifts after the completion of the New Testament, he was getting up and he was reading his, his, uh, his speech, and he was going and he was exegeting uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And he said one thing that I thought was very interesting. Um, all of his exegesis was horribly wrong, but... but uh, uh, and we could demonstrate that on some podcast when we have time. But everything he said was wrong. But he said one thing that I thought was really interesting to the crowd. They were, I think, they were debating actually in a United Pentecostal church, and the the defender of of that faith, he said, "I'm not asking this church to agree with what I'm saying. I'm just asking you to understand." And and I thought of all the approaches. That was probably one of the best approaches you could have in that kind of setting because majority of the time whenever there's a debate, people are there, they're wanting to win sides. And he was saying, I'm not here necessarily to convert you tonight. I just want you to understand what I'm saying. Of course, what he said was nonsense. But he wanted people to understand. And, and I think that we should be able to have civil discussion. And even if you don't win me to your side in one meeting, we should be able to, to still speak. 
and and, and of course there's nothing being talked about tonight I disagree with and so but I'm, I'm on the side but I think um, just really to, to pick up what, what I was about to say and divert it into a question is what is like mine and Tony's responsibility as Christian young men uh, that are white what can we do to better the churches, to better unity, to better that next generation. How do we use like this platform? Are, are, do you think that having this conversation is effective? Is it something that we just, as time goes, we're going to do better? Or how can we expedite the process of being able to have conversations with people and address racism as a sin and get it rooted out of not only Christianity, but out of American life? Uh, I, I saw a documentary one time on uh, by Bill Russell it was about Bill Russell and they were traveling through the south to play a basketball game when he was with the Celtics and he and his team got off the bus to move into the hotel and um, Bill Russell walked in the door with his teammates and the people that ran the hotel told him he could not come through that front door. In fact, uh, they said he couldn't come through the front door, and he, he said, well, I'm with my team. And they said, I don't care who you're with, you can't come through the front door. He said, well, if I can't come through the front door, I'm not coming in. And his teammates said, oh, man, that's wrong. They shouldn't have did that. But they all went to their rooms. And I'll tell you what black people hate. For white people to say, we think that it's wrong, but we ain't gonna change any of our positions on that, you know. Uh, so Bill Russell said, with it, so Bill Russell said, well, if I can't sleep in the hotel with my room, my team, I'm not gonna play on the floor with them. And all the newspapers said, Bill Russell put his personal needs above the game of basketball. Hey, Bill Russell trying to make basketball a political issue and they just rode him in the ground. And so I, I've seen a lot of black guys, white guys, say to me, Billy Ellis, that was wrong what they did to you. But you didn't say nothing. You didn't risk ruining your relationship with them by saying anything. See, see, black people get fed up with lip service. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, <clears throat> excuse me, it's one thing to say that you hate racism and that racism is such a sin. Uh, and you get up in the pulpit and preach to a large crowd and say, racism is a sin. God don't like it. And everybody shouting. But when you get off the platform and you see a racist act and you do nothing or say nothing about it, black people see right through that, you know. So it starts with your convictions uh, coming to, to life with what you really believe. Now, here's what bothers me. If you saw a person uh, looking at a movie and you determined your level of fellowship with them for looking at a movie, but you don't determine your level of fellowship with them for telling a dirty black joke, you understand? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So either you are against it or you're not. But just saying that racism is a sin and not taking an action 
it is is just is vain as far as many black people are concerned, you know. Uh, and I've I've been through. Oh God, I just want to be careful. I've been through a lot of discussions about how to improve race relationships in our organization, and uh, and it's it's just I've seen where people just don't like to talk about it. And here's what I hear. When you bring up something that really needs to be discussed, they say, I'm not racist. I've got some black friends. Congratulations. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 yeah. Yeah, even if they could do that, that doesn't mean anything. Because if you're not anti-racist, then you are just as racist, mm-hmm. you know, uh, by, by omission, by uh, submission. If you can sit around the table and listen to your friends tell jokes about black people and you sit silently, you know, you're just as racist. You just might not be guilty by association. Yeah, yeah. Well, not just by association, by silence, by apathy, you know. So I don't know if you remember when you did come and preach when I, at my home church. My youth pastor was a white man married to a black lady. And uh, she was um, married previously before that. And she had three other kids whenever they got married. And her oldest son uh, was my, well, a little bit younger than me. Right. And we we were best of friends. My dad was the youth uh, or the assistant pastor. He was a youth pastor's son. We had they were we were always drugged together to the same. I guess dragged together to the same meetings, and they would be doing their thing. We'd be out playing, and you know, there were I never really understood the whole racism thing until we were friends at school, or we were out seeing each other like at camps and stuff. And, and then, then like, like even at United, United Pentecostal Church camp meetings, people just look at us like, why aren't you with your own groups, you know? But it's because, you know, it's never never been an issue. I've never even thought of it, you know, like that until, I mean, you, the, the better, better scenario I could tell you is you see these videos of these two, three-year-old boys running to each other. One's a little black boy, one's a little white boy hugging each other. Racism is taught. You're not born yeah, with it. Right. And... I want to be careful with my little girl to make sure she doesn't see people like that. And it's very, very important to teach that, you know. And I just, I, I don't know how much further in our generation we can we can destroy before the next generation is completely. You know, no hope. Are we doing better as a society or are we regressing? As a society, I think we hide it better. Uh, I think there's been some improvements. Uh, I don't know to what degree they have really taken part in the lives of people uh, and um, to what degree the conviction is real, real enough to take a stand and take a risk. I have seen some improvements. Uh, could we do better? I believe we can. Absolutely. But I don't think it's anything that we can actually legislate or riot to achieve. 
I think we need to have those conversations and then to be honest and open. And we've got to be able to say, you know, uh, be able to actually honestly evaluate ourselves, you know. You know, Paul says in the book of Second Corinthians, examine yourselves, you know. And I think that really we've got to be able to really honestly examine ourselves, right? you know. I think a lot of people are going to be disappointed when we go to heaven and see that Jesus isn't the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white guy that we we portray him as. And for Jesus to love us, I mean, I don't understand how we can't love others as Jesus loves us, as, as the church, you know. And I, I pray like Ryan does that we do become better as a society and as a church. I mean, because the only thing that can change this, it's not a legislative, it's not the government, it's, it's, it's the church. We, we have to be changed before we can change them. It's, it's the worst in the city. I agree with that. A bold question, but it's talked about. Not saying that it doesn't exist in it, because we know for sure that it does. Is America racist? America racist? No, I don't believe America in and of itself is racist. I believe America has a dark past and uh, had many people in authority who uh, who were racist and some people in authority who probably still are. There are some people who came from a racist background and they cover it real well. Uh, America in and of itself is not racist. You know, I, I love America, you know, and I'm a patriot. But let me ask you. have to be for fighting for it for almost 18 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me ask you a question. When you draft a young man to go to the World War, World War II, but tell him he can't fight next to a white guy, you know, and bring him back home and put him in the Jim Crow South, after he's flown bombing missions and been shot at, you know, uh, there's, there's ways we think about that, you know. Uh, when you draft a young guy and send him to Vietnam to a war that people don't want anyway, and then you say that he's not patriotic because he don't want to go to war at Vietnam, and he's a draft dodger, but you bring him back here and he can't sit at the counter and eat an ice cream or at a restaurant and eat a hamburger because he's black, you know, you know, you know, you, you can't expect black people to say that America is not racist because those policies, those policies still existed. Yes. And, and government allowed them to exist. You know, when you have a governor that stands on the stands of a, uh, the steps of a, a school and says, racism now and racism forever and segregation, I mean, segregation now and segregation forever. You know, uh, he he might have been one of a few, but he was the governor, so he had enough authority to call a lot of racist shots, and so people are going to feel what they experience. Yeah. You know, what do you what do you think about so, uh, reparations? I don't believe in it. I don't I don't see how that it can I don't even see how it, it can work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I know that black people have been cheated, you know, uh, yeah, historically, and I, nobody can deny that. You know, if if your your grandfather, great grandfather, was allowed to go buy a thousand acres, you know, 
And uh, my grandfather couldn't buy an acre because he, you know, was black in, in that community. You know, and then you're, you're, and now you own a lot of land and a lot of resources. And, you know, uh, my kids will be angry for feeling shortchanged. But there's not rioting and burning and pillaging is not the way to handle it. But that's not going to stop them from feeling like they've been shortchanged. Sure. You know? So we all know, you've already told us, you're ultra conservative. I am. Brian and I, likewise. Um, but as a... Taxation is theft. <laughs> but as a black minister, I want, I, I want to ask you this just point blank. Um, what do you think about our presidential Democrat no nominee saying that if you don't vote for him and you're a black man, you're not black? Uh, I've heard that so many times. You know, as a black, does that mean you get some white privilege? <laughs> yeah, I've I've, I've been uh, I've been uh, I've been told that I'm a sellout. You know, because I don't vote Democrat. That makes no sense to me. Hey, it it may not because that's how people think though. The the way the Democrats have kept blacks to me this is my opinion. They kept black in subjection is convincing those with the black voice is to force black people to vote Democrat, you know, uh, as a result of uh, their racial connection. You know, that if you don't vote Democrat, you're not black. You know, you're not really black because you supported this person. You're not really black because you supported that person. You're not really black because you didn't support that person. You know, I, I remember some people saying to me, Brother Ellis, I thought you was a real man of God. How can you support Donald Trump and not Hillary Clinton? You know, and I'm saying, well, you thought wrong. You know, because I can't support Hillary Clinton. You yeah. Know? I, you know, I just don't believe what she believes. I just, you know. I just wonder how many people, now this is going in a complete different direction. I, I just don't understand how people can, me and Brian had a, a discussion about this. How can you be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump? My answer is how can you be a a Christian and not. I mean, with all due respect, I mean, we had listeners message us one time that I, I reposted a joke. Like there was this meme where, uh, and I thought it was hilarious. Like there was a, there was four uh, pictures. And the first one was a picture of God. The second one was a picture of George Washington. The other one was a picture of Abraham Lincoln. The final picture was a picture of Donald Trump. And they were all wearing red hats. And God's hat said "Make." George Washington's hat said "Make America." Abraham Lincoln said, make America great. And then Donald Trump said, make America great again. And I don't even remember why I posted it. But, but I posted it and somebody was like, all of your content is so Christian. But then you have him. You support him. You support him. How in the world could you guys do that? And again, if that listener is listening, I'm sorry to bring it up. We love you. Thank you for listening. for listening. And we had a small back and forth. It never got heated at all. But, but I mean, it just... And I understand. I, I, I legitimately, I mean, Tony may not see it as much as I do, but I certainly understand because there are some times where Donald Trump does things that are very, very difficult to do. Donald Trump does stupid things. Absolutely. You know, Somebody just needs to take his phone away. Yeah, really. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to deny that. But let me tell you something. I, I, when I vote, I start asking myself the questions. What is it that I want to see happen? I, I'm, I'm fond of a strong military. Absolutely. 
I'm fond of earning my money and keeping as much of it as I can keep. I'm fond of the pro-life movement. I'm fond of the definition of uh, uh, the, uh, the family, you know, between one husband and one wife. There's a lot of things that I believe. You know, I'm strong. Uh, I believe that America ought to be the, the real superpower in the earth, and we ought to be influencing. And for the most part, most uh, Democrats used to support things like that. Well, they supported a lot of things before Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton. And so, you know, so now and now whatever they can oppose. The exact opposite. Yeah, anything mm-hmm. anything he says, they, they fight against it. I just pray that they don't that he doesn't come out and say air is essential. Yeah, yeah. Because they'll take it from us. Yeah, I'm just saying well, if we bring all the air then there won't be enough of the cows. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but I just I just got my political views. Sure. And I, I don't have to like Donald Trump as a person. You know, I'm not inviting him to my house to eat dinner. Is I'm he not, racist? I don't think so. I, don't I was going to ask that question, but I didn't know how to bring it up. I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I didn't either. But. I don't think he's racist. I think that he says things that... I think he's ignorant a lot. I think he says things that would give people some leverage to say that. Sure. Let, me, let me ask you this, uh, because I'm starting to feel comfortable with you. I've heard people defend him and say, well, he's not racist, but he's racially insensitive. Can you be racially insensitive and not be racist? I, I, I don't I don't know. I think Donald Trump is just Donald Trump, you know. He he's not your typical Wall Street uh rich man. You know, most people in Washington became millionaires through their political uh achievements. They so they're very wealthy people, but their connections with business executives and their financial backing is so fat Your financial backing. Donald Trump, you know, borrowed money from his daddy and became a builder like his father. Donald Trump walked through the work sites and meet drywall hangers and electricians and bulldozer drivers. And, and he talked the, the language of uh, uh, New York. You know, he talks like a New Yorker. You know, he's just straightforward, you know, but he's a crafty businessman. So he got filthy rich, but he loved working with people. So when he became a politician, he didn't know nothing about, uh, at least know enough about the, the workings of Washington to where you can, you know, uh, get crucified for almost everything, you know. He just being Donald Trump. And he says some dumb stuff. You know, he says some really dumb stuff. And I don't agree with everything he says or everything he does, you know. But uh, when, I, when I look at the double standard that many people are applying to uh, Donald Trump as a president and as a candidate, you know, I just I, I I like him even more because at least he's real. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And see, that's the thing too. Like, and now how do we get into just talking about politics? But that's one thing that um, he he will do something. And if like Joe Biden or Bill Clinton did the exact same thing, I'm more apt to call them out on it. 
And the reason why I do that is not just because of political parties, but it's one thing when you pretend to be one way and you get outed. Like, Donald Trump says some really stupid stuff, but I'm far more tolerant when he says something dumb than whenever Joe Biden says something dumb, because Joe Biden presents himself like he is this intelligent uh, going to fix everything, uh, political know-how. And Donald Trump has never claimed to be that. And so whenever Joe Biden does, it's a whole lot more fun to call him out because he presents himself as though he's this great orator whenever the guy can't hardly get through a sentence without sniffing somebody's hair. Well, you know, you know, you know it's, we've been endowed by our creator that all, all men are created by the, uh, 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 you know that thing. <laughs> You know, that's what Joe Biden said, yeah. and nobody yeah. calls him out. I promise you, if Donald Trump had made that mistake, oh, it'd be on every news outlet, every social media post, every day. Yeah, not just one time. It'd have been out there every day. So, yeah, yeah. you know, Brian, this has been one way to kick off season two, man. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Uh, let's let's do. Did you have another question for him? Yeah, I was, was going to uh, talk about something we, we talked about kind of... Uh, off the record? Bill, yeah, off the record kind of. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, kind of lightening the mood now that we've had a, this very serious conversation, um, what is it that you're hoping to see with the remainder of your pastorate here uh, in, in your ministry here? And, and like I, I saw, we had, a, like Tony mentioned earlier, there was a model of, of what you wanted to see as the church. What's your vision for the years... Uh, and the truth is, I, I hope that I can raise up uh, a successor to, that will dream like I dream, that will work like I work, and that can build the relationships with the people that it took me 30-plus years to build, you know. Uh, I'm not really afraid of dying. You know, the only thing I'm afraid is of leaving here with no succession plan or in place. Uh, to grow to what we see. Uh, I believe that this city was given to me by God to make a difference. You know, y'all pull up in that neighborhood right here, right? Across the street. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, this was the headquarters for the Five Deuce Hoover Crips gang. Now, you can park your car out there and go, go to camp for a week. And nobody will mess your car up. You don't see bars on our windows and, you know, those sliding bars like you see up in New York. doors, yeah. In front of doors, you don't see none of that uh, in our church. God has blessed us to have the kind of relationship in this neighborhood that people respect us and respect me. And they don't want to hurt this church. There's always going to be somebody wild coming in the neighborhood and doing some stuff. So that happens from time to time. But this neighborhood loves this church, you know, and they, they love the people here. And so uh, I just hope that whoever replaces me uh, can continue to build on that and continue to grow the church in the direction that we were going in and see this as a, a vision from the Lord and bring people on board with it. No, I mean, I, 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 I pray that my prayer is that we can dream the same dreams as visionaries such as Pastor Ellis. Bro, anybody, I'm not just saying this because you're sitting here in front of me, but I was explaining to Brian who you were.
And anybody in the Midwest knows who Pastor Ellis is. You know, we're going, we're going to be tomorrow with DJ Shoulders. And oh, yeah. We talked with uh, Nathan Batson. And what a prince of a man. You're so lucky you get to spend time with him. And I pray that my generation catches on to what you started. And, Brian, we got a long ways to go for that. Mm-hmm. We do. Um, We've never never discussed discussed this, this, but but, uh, the way way that you just now were ending, I I, I wonder, um, and I hate to put you on the spot as well, but how how closely are you eyeing eyeing retirement? Uh, I'm not really sure. Uh, I've contemplated it a while, but I just, I don't think I have enough in place yet to make that work, you know. as a pastor who's done it for so long, what's the emotional uh, and the spiritual feeling whenever you even hear that word? Like, because you got so much invested. Yeah. Whenever you uh, again, I'm not. I'm not afraid of that. I, what I'm afraid of is not leaving the church with sound enough leadership, to where it can move forward. You know, with, without me, and so that's my only concern. Is that it has nothing to do with. Me wanting to be in charge. It's the countless hours. Are they going to name the sleepless night? Name the gym after you. Or... Uh, uh, that's not worry. That's not my worry either. You know, I think I get more sleep. You know, <laughs> but no. Uh, on a serious note, I, I, I just that's my only concern. You know, uh, my main concern. You know. Brian was he asked you off the record, and before we we start going downhill and closing this thing out. He asked you a question off the record, and I, I would love to for you to share to all of our listeners, our young ministers that may be listening. You you are a dynamic preacher. Um, as you a matter, think so? Oh, I think I think you're all right. As a matter of fact, I'm going to see if we can't get our hands on one of those series out there in your foyer to give away to some of our, our listeners. But either anyway, uh, how do you prepare a sermon? How do you hear from God? Well, I pray. You know, obviously, you have to do that. And I see what the needs of my people are, you know, uh, and I pray for God to give me direction as to how to get them to where he wants them to be. Uh, and that's not always easy because in Pentecostal preaching, we preach more for the effect. Uh, God has moved me in a different direction from that, and I preach mostly for life change you know mm-hmm. and that's my real goal to preach your life change so uh, if I'm preaching about family I usually preach in series and the, each part of the series has action steps that you can take to work on your family if I'm preaching on finances there are action steps for working on your Finances, and spend a lot of time, you know, bringing up all the scriptures that possibly would help me speak the points, and spend time in prayer over it. You know, that that I can uh, work. I, man, I, I listen. I used to be so bothered if I preached and people weren't shouting. Uh, but man, I tell you, when God dealt with me about this, because. I had people that were so excited, man, you could just drop the uh, book on the floor and they'd jump. But they would do some of the dumbest things with their life because they were excited but not really learned. 
And so I don't preach for effect. You know, if you come to hear me preach and you see people sitting there looking, they're not just looking, they're writing notes and they're paying attention because I'm teaching application. One of our values is the application of Scripture for life change. And so that's, that's how I prepare. Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, when we did a children's revival, my mother-in-law did a few years ago, we were over in the old sanctuary, and I kind of got in trouble because I kept sliding into that back door because I wanted to hear what you had to say, bro. Yeah. It's because you present it in such a way, like you said, it's, I, my mentality is instead of having somebody yell in my face for 30 minutes, I'd rather learn how to grow for 20. Right. Instead of it being puddled deep and you making a lot of splashes, I'd rather dive in and apply it. Right. And so Brian asked that question to a couple of people, and it's so interesting to hear how different people hear from God. Sometimes it's audible, sometimes it's vision, sometimes it's dreams. But I want to be receptive to that. Right. And, bro, as we're winding down, we always end with two different segments. The first one is, what are you reading? What's something that's impacted you? Uh, we've had a lot of recommendations, and my wife wanted to make sure that we brought that back for the season two here because she she likes learning as well. And then we want to end it with giving you the floor for the next couple of minutes, letting you tell us what God's been dealing with you, something that's heavy on your heart, anything like that. So tell us a little bit about what you've been reading lately. Well, I, I, I don't read one just one book because I got so much going on at one time. Uh, books all spaced out, and I got all read a, a bunch of bookmarks. bookmarks huh? Yeah, a whole bunch of bookmarks. <laughs> and so I've I've, I've read the book uh, uh, Crucial Conversations, and we we'll read that. That's not by us. That's not by us. I wish it was. Uh, I read uh, 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 Patrick Lencioni. You ever heard of him? I have not. Have you? Patrick Lencioni. He's talking about the uh, five dysfunctions of a team. And so, I, you know, I, I give you a little something to show you what I'm doing with that. So I read a lot of stuff on leadership and team building and those kind of things. And then, uh, of course, I went to the John Maxwell trainer's course. So, oh, really? Yeah. Was, How was that? It was, it was exciting, yeah, really good. Uh, and then, of course, you know, anything spiritual I'm going, I'm reading is this. You know, just to help me prepare for message. Sure. Yeah. Mm. So, our final segment, Brian, this has been awesome, hasn't it? Yes. <laughs> so, tell us what God's been dealing with you about, something we may have missed, uh, a word of encouragement to our brothers and sisters. The next couple of minutes, yours, Bishop. Well, again, I tell you that my main concern is trying to grow leaders to uh, be able to fulfill the role of leadership as a successor in this ministry. I don't ever want this church to be built on me and my personality and my, you know, charisma, what little bit that might be. I really want this church to be built on the concept of vision and purpose. And I want whoever leads this church after me to be someone who can exercise those gifts of dreaming and bringing people along with that dream. Mm. What an episode, Brian. Yeah. Um, it's never too late to plan, to prepare, and to develop somebody. Um, 
in order to influence people, in order to build people and grow people. And, and I think we've, we've heard uh, from a pastor tonight that that's what he's done here as he's invested his life into so many people, into a community, owning a city block, and hasn't been without adversity. But through it all, here we are, and uh, great things are coming here to Clarksville, Tennessee. Amen. Guys, you've been listening to the Crucial Conversation Podcast. Crucial Conversation Podcast.